Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. What do you think the number one answer is to the question, what do you want most in life? Well, you know, this time of year it may be, well, that 10 or 20, uh, 50 pounds, you know, just that'd be great if I could lose that. I want that promotion, or I just want to, I want to be done mediating between the two sides, like John was talking about. Or maybe it's more, maybe it's the raise, or maybe it's a car that runs when I, you know, turn it on. But typically, the answer that you'll hear more than anything else is, I just want to be happy. It's something we all want, we'll spend our whole life trying to be happy, but how do you get there? Unfortunately, a lot of folks today think that whatever makes you happy should be the basis for every decision you make in life. If something makes me feel happy, then, well, it's got to be right. If someone makes me feel, if someone makes me feel happy, then they have to be the right one for me. And on the other hand, of course, if something makes me feel unhappy, well, then I need to stop that. Or if someone makes me feel unhappy, then... Well, they must be wrong for me. But should we really determine what's right or wrong based on how it makes us feel? Unfortunately, that's become the way that an awful lot of people live their life. Feelings first. It doesn't matter what the facts are. Feelings wins every time. For those people who chase happiness they'll experience that chasing happiness can end up destroying the very thing that you want and destroy your life. Constantly pursuing experiences that make me happy, constantly pursuing relationships that make me feel happy can have devastating results on us. It seems like for the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years, Forrest Gump has played nonstop on, you know, on, the, on the guide. I'm just going to tell you, there is not a character in a movie that has made me more frustrated and angry than Jenny. <laughs> that woman just drove me nuts in that movie. I love you, Jenny. No, oh, stick her head under the water in the pool of Washington. <laughs> Let's baptize her till the bubbles stop. She just... Yeah, you've seen that movie. You know how she is. And the thing is, you know people like that in your life that make you that exasperated. They're constantly searching for happiness when happiness is right there in front of them. Happiness is ready and willing to embrace them, but they're never happy. They're always chasing something else. And for her, it ended up costing her her life. Any parent with the sense that God gave a goose knows better than to let their toddlers live their life by whatever makes them happy. They're fascinated by the sights and the lights and the sounds and the surprises of things that pique their curiosity. They're intrigued by electrical outlets and they just know that there's a hole that something needs to be stuck into. 
10-year-olds are convinced that they can ride their skateboard down the roof and jump off into the swimming pool, and it would be awesome, dude. And decades of regret can follow if they're allowed to play at that early age with fire and fireworks and firearms. Decisions made during those early and later adolescent years based on how it makes them feel can be life-changing. Chasing the euphoria of emotions and hormones at that age in life has perpetually robbed parents of sleep. Because you know that if they're just chasing what makes them happy, they're going to be miserable. And yet, making major life decisions based on the impulse of something or someone that will make us more happy than we've ever been is marketing 101. How can we convince people that their happiness depends on what we're selling to them? People who are old enough to know better make life-changing decisions about the relationships that they're in that way. Well, I'm just not... They make me feel so happy, so why shouldn't we be together? Or, I'm just not happy when I'm with them, so I'm going to leave them. And to justify our decisions and our behavior and even our lifestyle, we'll bring God into it and make Him the bad guy. Well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? Or, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would He? I can tell you this as a pastor with more years than I ever imagined that I would have in preaching. That whenever anyone has said to me, God just wants me to be happy, or God doesn't want me to be unhappy, they were about to make a really bad mistake. So the question begs it to be asked, does God want you to be happy or not? It's been said that God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Well, that sounds really good. I've, I've said that as well. But, you know, as long as you live, you ought to, be, you ought to keep learning. And, and one of the things I've learned is to make this adjustment. That holiness and happiness are not necessarily mutually exclusive. God wants us to be both holy and happy. He knows that our holiness is what makes us happy. A casual glance at Scripture indicates He wants us to have both in our life. The very first teachings of Jesus, known as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, all begin with the same phrase. You'll be blessed if, you'll be blessed when, or in the best King James that you remember, Blessed are those who. Now more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness, Jesus promises God's blessing. And it's that blessed life that offers all of us who conform our life to His will is what we enjoy as the Beatitudes. It, 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 I, don't get me wrong, I've read this. I don't know this, okay? But I can read. It comes from the, word, from the Latin word beatus. No, it's not Aunt B and Mayberry. But beatus is that word that gets translated into English for blessed, a state of being, happiness, a state of well-being. Jesus would say in John 15, verse 11, 
I've told you this so that my joy would be with you and in you. And he would tell them later. I want you to be joyful. James would say it this way in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you might rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. So all of these major players in Scripture, from Jesus and James and Peter and Paul, they all agree with what you find in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that are practically God's handbooks on happiness. It can be somewhat misleading to say that God desires our obedience more than our happiness. It's actually more accurate to understand that it's our obedience to God that creates happiness. So I guess I'd remind you, life is short. Why be miserable when you can be happy, blessed by being obedient to God? God designed us for happiness. Now there are others <laughs> in my own family that know a lot more about this than I do. They've spent more years and time in books studying anatomy and biology and physiology. But let me share some things with you that I've read. Some of these words may sound familiar to you. I at least recognized them when I read them. It's like, oh, I've heard of that before. When God created our brain, he gave us three specific chemicals as standard equipment. One of them is oxytocin. That's the chemical that's released into your brain that makes you feel comfort. When I eat mom's oatmeal cookies, oxytocin is released. When somebody gives you a hug, oxytocin is what gets released into your brain. And it makes you feel happy. Another one is dopamine. Again, standard equipment. Some of us have a little more, some of us have a little less. But it's that chemical that, that, of discovery, if you will. It, it energizes us for action. And, and that, that energy that we get when we feel like we've accomplished something. At the end of the day, you walk in and there's no wall there. And you walk away that night and now there's a wall there and maybe even a roof. And, and things are in place. You feel like you've accomplished something. It's what's, it's, it's what's released when you pay off the car loan. It's why we feel the way we do when we solve a problem that's been nagging us and we just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it's also the chemical that's released in your brain when you pass the test that you didn't know anything about. Serotonin is that third specific chemical that's standard equipment with God. And that's the chemical of respect. It gives you a sense of, of value and worth. It's what you feel when somebody asks your opinion and then actually follows it and tells you later, man, that really worked out great. I am so glad I asked you what I should do. 
it's that pat on the back. It's that cheer from the, from the stands when, when you've done something well. Now, what's all that got to do with making us happy? Well, there's three basic answers to this. The relationships that we have with others are a source of oxytocin. That connection that we have with people releases that chemical into our brain when we encourage somebody or when somebody encourages us. The excitement that we feel when we see something in Scripture for the first time or we have that ah moment. that I've never seen that connection before. That's the source of dopamine, that discovery or, or learning. And then the, that sense of being valued and, and being worthwhile, being needed. That's the source of that serotonin, that, that significance. And that happens when we serve others and we get pleasure from serving them. Now here are some other things to understand about how God designed us. One is that all three of these chemicals are extremely addictive. Way to go, God. Thanks for that. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a reason why God created us that way. Because even though they're addictive, they're released in very, very, very small bursts. His design is what drives us toward what He wants for us. Happiness comfort, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of value and worth. A second thing that you need to understand is that those chemicals are very, very temporary. Not only are they released in small amounts, but it doesn't last. They dissipate quickly. And God didn't design us then so that we would remain in a constant state of contentment. They have frontal lobotomies for that. It's a joke. If you've had a frontal lobotomy, you're probably not listening anyway, but someone you know may have. And if you did have one, you're listening, you think I am doing great. But see, here's the thing. He didn't intend for us to exist in that constant state. Instead, He designed us to enjoy it for a brief moment in response to the actions that we've chosen. That's why we learn to repeat those actions and develop those healthy habits that create those feelings of being blessed or happy. God gives us, uh, do I dare say it this way? It's like the carrot on the stick. It's the incentive. It's the motivation that's out there in front of us to continue and to do again the things that led us to make wise choices to start with. Now, there's some other variables also that contribute to our happiness. One of them is genetics. Some people, have you noticed this? Some people are just naturally optimistic. And they can drive others of us nuts who struggle to be optimistic. <clears throat> we made a phone call this last week to uh, a two year old in our family, it was his birthday. And his dad said, Luke, come on over here. Grammy and Papa, they, they want to tell you happy birthday. And so you could hear this, you know, commotion in the background. And the next thing we hear is, you know, he doesn't, he's not prompted any more than this. 
The next thing we hear is, Hi, Papa! With just that kind of sparkle and twinkle in his voice. And it's just the way this kid is. And that's the way you want a two-year-old to be, right? That's the way I want to be. About 50% of happiness can be genetic. Not always, but it can be. But about 40% of our choices account for our happiness. <laughs> Let me approach this from the back side of the rock, first of all. The one that's all muddy and dirty and rough and everything. When you've got the little kid that's grumpy and they're not happy, what do you frequently hear people say? Oh, I'm sorry. They're tired. They just need a nap. Or, well, they're hungry. They just need to... Or, well, they need the diaper changed. You know. When we make wise choices about our diet, about our rest, even about our relationships our relationship with God, and when we live in obedience to Him, guess what? That comes back to us about 40% of the time with feelings of happiness and joy and contentment and being blessed. That means that there's only about 10% of the circumstances in our life that create happiness. And yet, a lot of us will spend 90% of our time trying to make ourselves happy with the circumstances around us. So let me help you think of it this way. If we're designed and built for happiness by God, then how do we actually get it? Well, God teaches us the art of happiness in Scripture. For example, if you want to live a blessed life of happiness, Psalm 1 is the place to start. This is how it reads in the English Standard Version. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It begins with that key word, blessed, to describe a state of well-being, contentment, or happiness. But it immediately recognizes that our relationship with others is a key source for that blessing. Because those relationships with others are the reason why oxytocin is released into our brain. Remember, God designed us to positively respond to compassion and comfort and encouragement. That's why God identifies this first step in learning to practice the art of happiness. Make godly friends. Pay attention to the people in your life. They're going to make a significant impact on your happiness. He talks about, and you can see this progression when he says, you know, pay attention to what, who you're walking with, where you're standing, and where you have a seat. Walk not in the wisdom of the wicked, the people who set the cultural standards for what's acceptable and approved. They live their life in opposition to the will of God. If we look to them for wisdom, if we look to them for guidance of how to live our life, we're probably not going to end up being very happy. Or if it goes beyond that, if we stop long enough, you know, beyond just asking directions, if we actually stand in their way, standing with them, kind of refers to adopting that same lifestyle 
of those who ignore or rebel against God. And finally, he says, not to sit in the seat of scoffers. It indicates those who take a seat with those who sit in judgment and condemnation of others. You know, all of that really simply just to say this. It's something that I'm sure your family at one point in time or your friends told you. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. There's nothing that says our happiness depends on where we live or where our friends live. There's nothing that says our happiness depends on how much money we make or how much money our friends make. What race we are or what race our friends are. What language we speak or what language our friends speak. Happiness doesn't even depend on who your friends vote for or cheer for in November. The first step toward practicing the art of happiness depends on making godly friends. They're the ones who will bless your life. Wait. Or is it that we're the ones who are to bless the life of our friends because of God in our life? Are we practicing the art of happiness in ways that are a blessing to those in our life? The next step from Psalms 1 tells us this. To practice the art of happiness, we have to learn how to meditate. No, not some kind of sit on the floor, cross-legged with some kind of, you know, incense burning. He simply says it this way in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Remember that chemical reaction that God gives us when we learn something new? It's a release of dopamine. And no, there's not going to be a quiz after this. It's just that a lot of research indicates that meditation is a great way to increase the dopamine levels that we have. And that doesn't mean some type of Eastern mysticism. It just means learning to practice the art of reflection. And from a Christian perspective, you can see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble or honest, Whatever things are just, whatever things are right or pure or lovely or of good report, admirable or commendable, if there's anything that's a virtue or excellent, and if there's anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. If you dwell on the opposite of that, if you dwell on everything that's wrong instead of everything that's true, if you dwell on the gossip and the rumors instead of what's true, you're probably not going to be very happy. If you dwell on how people lied to you and deceived you, you're probably not going to be very happy. If you dwell on the things that are just ugly about people and ugly about life, you're probably not going to be very happy. And likewise, if you focus instead on everything that's wrong in life, instead of finding anything worthy of praise, and that's what you meditate on, that's what you constantly think about, you're probably not practicing the art of happiness. And consequently, you're not going to do the, the last step in Psalms 1 in practicing the art of happiness, and that is learn how to serve others. Learn how to be productive. He says in verse 3, 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, when we serve, it, when we serve others, we gain that sense of significance, and that's when our bodies do what God designed it to do, and it releases that burst of serotonin. It gives us that sense of, yeah, that was good. I'm glad I did that. When we choose to serve, it has a more important impact on our happiness than any kind of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, don't miss that. We're happiest when we're a blessing to others. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds an awful lot like something Jesus said and modeled in his life, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Or, if you learn to practice the art of serving, you'll be happier. It makes a difference when we make a difference in somebody else's life. That's what Jesus did for us, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. Jesus said, for, the, for my joy, I leave with you. And later, in retrospect, it's mentioned that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. You know what that sounds like to me? If you look at how Jesus modeled the art of happiness, we'll learn more about him, and we'll follow his example and love more like him, and as we do that, we'll end up looking more like Jesus when we practice the art of serving like Jesus did. How incredibly ironic. Because we think our happiness depends on what somebody else does for us. But Jesus showed us that the best way to live a blessed life depends on what we do for others. And when we decide to live our lives that way, doing for others what they can't do for themselves, it's a choice that we make to die to self. Instead of demanding that we get what we want, demanding that we have it our way, instead we find a way to serve others with what they need. Dying to self. That's why Paul taught this in Romans chapter 6. <laughs> There's a translation that I've discovered recently called the Easy English Bible. It phrases, it phrases Romans 6 this way. Remember what your baptism shows? When they baptize you, it shows that you are united with Christ. Your baptism shows that they buried you just like they buried Christ after his death. It's like you died with him and they buried you with him. And because of that, God will also raise us just as he raised Christ from the dead. God the Father is so great and so powerful that he raised Christ to a new life. And that means that we also can live our lives in a new way. And then verse 5 says, we have become united with Christ. And we've died like he died. Because of that, we will also be united with him in his new life. Just like Christ rose, we also will rise to live a new life. And finally, verse 6 of Romans 6. We know that God has caused our old nature 
to die with Christ on the cross. Hmm. When we become one with Christ, when we learn how He lived His life, when we love as much as He loved, we start to look like He looked because our old selfish self died with Him on the cross. The people that learn that are the people that learn that life is short and it's important for them to practice the art of happiness. You won't find happiness just by coming to church. You become happy when you're united with Christ. You won't find happiness because of what you do for yourself. You become happy serving others. You won't find happiness by finding the right person. You become happy by becoming the right person. Life is short. Learn how to practice the art of happiness by deliberately building relationships with people who are committed to honoring God in their life. Life is short. Learn to practice the art of happiness by disciplining yourself in what you allow yourself to dwell on. And because life is short, you learn that practicing the art of happiness comes when you decide what's more important for you is to serve others instead of demanding like a toddler that you have your own way. That is key to practicing the art of happiness. David, why don't you in the praise team join me on stage and we'll wrap up with this. When we learn to practice the art of happiness, it's going to show up not in some great, big, grand, monster way. Instead, it'll show up in those small, micro-moment choices. When you decide, I should write them a note. Send them a text. Have you done that before and later gotten the response, man, the timing for that couldn't have been better. I was having an awful day. When we practice the art of happiness, it shows up on these micro-moments of, I think I'm going to type that verse up and put it on my mirror. Because that's something I need to remember. It happens in those micro-burst moments of spontaneous acts of service. Here, let me help you with that. Let me hold your coat for you. Let me... The spontaneous moments of blessing others. MCC is a place where regular, normal people, okay, the normal, okay, yeah, that's normal for this life. But we're just regular, normal people that are trying to become more like Jesus. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.